0: Good morning. It's good to be here with you and uh, thankful that my family could come along with me this morning. Uh, My wife, Maddie, is here today and our daughter, who is almost two, is in the nursery. So if you hear any uh, faint sounds of screaming and crying, it's probably her this morning. But uh, she's really found her voice recently. But I do want to start by asking a question today. Uh, Who do you think of when you hear the word leader? Leader. What do you think of when you hear the word leader? America's history has many examples of people who uh, we would consider to be great leaders. You know, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Henry Ford, leaders in many different areas, and there's lots of them in our history as a country. Uh, There's also world leaders outside of America who have achieved great fame or infamy Uh, Due to their leadership abilities, Winston Churchill would be one, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. Who do you think of, though, when you hear the word leader? Who comes to mind first? The concept of leadership is going to come up in our text today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 15. Uh, And I hope that you think leadership is a relevant topic. Maybe you don't view yourself as a leader, but if you call yourself a Christian, and I believe that you're called to spiritual leadership. Leadership could take the form of God-given roles in your family, you know, dads and moms, you probably don't need to be convinc- convinced that you're already a leader in one way or another. Uh, you should, uh, but leadership could also take the form of something in the workplace. Maybe some here are managers, Uh, Maybe you're a boss at work, or you just have uh, subordinates of some kind. You're also obviously called to leadership. But even if you don't hold a formal position of leadership, I would say that as a believer in Christ, and especially if you're a member of this church, you're supposed to be a leader. The Church of Christ, composed of those who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and those who have been baptized into a local congregation, those people bear the responsibility of guarding the message of the gospel and propagating the gospel, not only to the next generation, but to an unbelieving world around us. We all have the responsibility to be spiritual leaders. And as we work through a narrative in the Old Testament, remain anchored to this truth, we who know Christ as our savior are called to spiritual leadership. Hopefully you love the Old Testament. Paul writes uh, about the Old Testament uh, several times. He says whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And Paul also says, speaking of the Old Testament, that these things took place as examples for us. Now in our particular Old Testament passage, we're going to see Saul's leadership King Saul, his leadership of the nation of Israel at a critical moment. And I do believe that this passage can serve both as an example to us, an error to avoid, uh, but also I believe when we look at this passage the way the original audience would have read it, it can create in us a longing and a desire for a better leader, a perfect leader. And we today have the advantage of knowing his name And it's my hope that this passage will increase our desire for Jesus and decrease our desire to lead anything without his help or follow anything or anyone else. So as we look at the Old Testament, remember that it shows our depravity and there's no shortage of poor leadership examples in the Old Testament. If someone, uh, a member of the nation of Israel, uh, the original audience of the Old Testament started to just read the Bible cover to cover, start in Genesis 1 and work to 1 Samuel 14, right before our passage today. What they would see over and over again is poor leadership. Let me give you some examples. The first man, Adam, he did not lead his family well. He didn't lead Eve well, and he was likely right there listening to the serpent tempter and did nothing about it. And then you could keep reading and get to the book of Exodus, and you'd see Moses, who overall he's known as a great leader, but he also had significant imperfections. In his anger, he killed an Egyptian. In his fear, he tried to reject the burden of leadership when God offered it to him. And in his impatience, he struck the rock twice and was prevented from entering the promised land. You get done reading about Moses, who comes next? It's Joshua, and he also accomplished great things for the Lord, but was he the perfect leader, a better leader? He made key mistakes. Joshua was mostly successful in his conquests, but there are a couple times that he didn't seek the Lord, and it ended in death for his people, or uh, creating treaties with those who are not God's people, and it only happened when, when he didn't seek the Lord's help. He was deceived by the Gibeonites, and he also was defeated at Ai. So we can add him to the list of imperfect leaders as well. And after him, we get to the judges. These were also men of faith, but uh, moral failure riddles the book of Judges. Jephthah made a foolish vow. Gideon gave into polygamy and made an ephod for the people to bow down to. And Samson, although he was mightier than any man, he could not control his lust for women, and that ended in his downfall. So the point of all that is just to show that there's a whole host of examples of poor leadership in the Old Testament. And if you're reading through the Bible, that's one thing that would stick out. And those who knew Israel's history and were alive when this book, First Samuel, was written, they would have known all those stories, and they would have had a desire for the promised leader, the one promised in Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent, When is the perfect leader going to come? Hey, we've got a new king, an anointed one. His name is Saul. He's taller than everyone else. He's more handsome than everyone else. Maybe this is the guy who's going to make everything right. But unfortunately, as we'll see in the chapter today, this is a similarly frustrating story. As we look at King Saul, we're going to find out something you already know. He too was not the perfect leader that God's people needed. God's people need a better leader. We're going to look at this chapter in three pieces. I'll start reading it for you. Piece number one of our story today is that God gives instructions. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So a few things to notice just from the first small piece of our story today. There are very clear, instructions that God gave to Saul. He's not ambiguous in what he's asking him to do. Saul knows exactly what God wants him to do. Notice also the authority that Samuel comes with in verse one. He says, the Lord sent me to anoint you, referring back to when he was anointed king of Israel, and that's where Saul's power and position of authority resides, in the anointing that came from the Lord. Notice also the justice of God in verse 2, when he says, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel. God did not forget the wrongs that had been done to his people, and he's going to use King Saul in this circumstance to make things right, to right the wrongs that had been done. And lastly, notice the instructions that are specific and clear. He says, devote it all to destruction. This is something called the ban of harem, Harem was when uh, God, God made a decree or declared that everything of this people should be destroyed. Uh, you can hear, it's, it's very similar to the word harem, which refers to a group of uh, wives that a king has. And that word kind of means that those wives are off limits. Well, in the same way, the spoil from this conquest is off limits to people. It needs to be burned and completely destroyed, given to God. That's why it's called the ban of harem. One of my professors at faith uh, uh, came up with a saying, uh, to violate harem is to become harem, meaning if you do take some of the devoted goods, then you need to be burned, and we, we can read about that in the book of Joshua. So it's a very serious command, a decree that God has given that you need to devote it all to destruction, and it's been given to Saul clearly, and he has the anointing and the ability to fill it out. So talk about being set up for success, right? First of all, the clear instructions, but also uh, Saul has the anointing as king from God's prophet. Saul is God's man on earth, and the leader of God's people. We'll see in the the next section or next piece of our story that there are literally hundreds of thousands of soldiers willing to follow Saul into battle. He was set up for success. As was mentioned, I, I grew up here in this church and in this town, and I had several different jobs as a teenager. Uh, I, I even worked for several different farmers. One of the farmers that I worked for, um, basically my job was just to do odd jobs around his property. I need to not look at Lucas because he was with me on this day, uh, the story that I'm about to tell. But uh, one of my jobs this day, a chilly spring day, was to air up all of the tires on all of the vehicles on his property. And he had uh, many, many vehicles. Uh, If I had to guess, he probably had 40 vehicles on his property, Uh, different things like cars, tractors, all kinds of different stuff. And they were not all in one place, they were scattered around. uh, And I had this portable air tank that I was using, but the problem, and I had to carry it around, but the problem is it only held enough air to do maybe two or three tires at a time. Then I have to carry it back to the main air compressor, fill it back up, and then go find the car I was on or the next car that I need to air up the tires for. And I could also, if I wanted to, I could use a series of hoses so that I wouldn't have to carry it as far, but it was really muddy out that day, so then dragging around the hoses in the mud wasn't, uh, didn't seem like a good option. What's my point in telling you this story? What I'm trying to say is that I was given a job but I wasn't really set up for success. I didn't have the tools that I needed to fulfill the job properly. This is not the problem for King Saul. He's given clear instructions, hundreds of thousands of people, everything he needs to obey the Lord perfectly. And I want to pause for just a few seconds, jump outside of the story to our lives today. Just like Saul, his issue wasn't that he had a lack of resources, or a lack of ability. We'll see later, his problem was actually something inside himself, the problem of sin. And just like him, we too need to listen carefully when God speaks to us and obey, even when it doesn't make sense. You know, God doesn't speak to us directly through a prophet today, speaks to us through his word, through the Bible. And even when it doesn't make sense, we too must obey. Saul was told to slaughter everyone, man, woman, child, beast, everything, everyone, save nothing for yourself, burn it all. And God doesn't have to explain himself, even when his instructions don't make sense. And for us, there are times when it doesn't make sense from a human perspective to you know, maybe strictly obey the rules of our country or our state or our city, But God gives governmental authority to whom he wills, and it's our responsibility when God gives instruction to say, yes, Lord, I will obey, even when it doesn't make sense. Jumping back into the story, King Saul has his instructions. What is he going to do with them? You'll notice as we read in verse 4 that Saul is a lot like the leaders of Israel before him. Saul partially obeys. Look at verse 4. I will read 4 through 9. So Saul summoned all the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So once again, a few things to notice, just to call your attention to about this chunk of verses. Saul had an amazing following, and he was probably an amazing man. Over 200,000 soldiers at his command. Can you imagine the responsibility that came with that? Can you imagine what his uh, leadership and management skills must have been to be able to control and manage that group of people? It's very likely that those of us here who are men and in our 20s and 30s and 40s, like we, we probably would have been in that group following Saul, and it would have been right for us to do so. He was God's anointed chosen leader. How many of us would find it daunting just to, to lead an organization of 200 people today? Like that, that's somebody pretty high up and successful in business if you have 200 employees. But 200,000 soldiers and more than that as king of Israel... I'm sure it was a heavy God-given responsibility, and I'm sure he felt it every day. Notice also God's mercy to the Kenites. So the other group of people in this story, besides the Amalekites, is the Kenites. And just like how God was punishing the Amalekites for their evil acts towards Israel in the past, God is rewarding the Kenites for the kindness that, he, that they showed toward Israel in the past. We get to see both sides of God's justice in this one story. His wrath against his enemies and the enemies of his people, but also his kindness towards those who befriend and show kindness to his people. Lastly, notice that Saul's obedience is obviously incomplete. Anyone who wants to see this in the story or outside of the story can It's clear because the instructions were so clear that Saul did not obey completely God's command. The passage says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and they would not utterly destroy them. He failed to completely obey. His obedience is incomplete. Some jobs when they are partially done it's as, I- as good as if they were not done at all. If we go back to my story of filling up tires on vehicles, let's say that I, instead of starting with one car, fill up all the tires, move to the next one, what if I just did three tires on each car and then moved on to the next one I left one flat tire on every car? Technically, I would do 75% of the job, 75% of the work would be done. Three out of four tires on every car. That's pretty good. That's a passing grade, right? But in reality, I didn't do anything. I didn't accomplish anything by doing the job partially. I didn't do anything to make the cars drivable or usable. I I accomplished nothing in spite of mostly doing the job. Likewise, Saul's partial obedience is counted as total disobedience, and it's totally useless to God. As followers of God today in His church, and those who are called to spiritual leadership, we need to be completely obedient, not partially obedient. There's no part of our lives that we don't have to submit to King Jesus. You just think how silly it is to say, like I, I avoid most occasions that, uh, that could tempt me to lust, Or, I try to show my fellow church members the love of Christ but this one person over here really annoys me. Or we might say that everything should be done for the glory of God and we might really believe that, but in reality, deep down in our hearts like Saul, we want a little bit of glory and a little bit of recognition for ourselves, a little bit of the praise of man. And that shows up with how we spend our money. We say it all belongs to God, but if someone were to see our budget, would they agree? Do we show it with our actions? what we believe? Do we back up our beliefs with total submission? If you've already given your life to the Lord, it's going to be difficult for you to see your blind spots in the area of obedience. But but know this, it's much easier to give lip service to pleasing God completely, lip service to total submission, than it is to actually live it out. Over a year ago, I started sharing the gospel with a friend of mine who I believed to not know the Lord as his Savior. He, he kind of grew up in churches, in and out a little bit, and I, I thought he didn't understand the gospel or needed to be saved, and I wanted to do a Bible study with him and eventually uh, you know, explain the gospel to him clearly so that he could come to know Jesus as his personal Savior. And as I got to know him better and uh, continue to share the gospel with him, what I found out was uh, he was unwilling to give up his sexual relationship with his girlfriend. And that made me really start to wonder if he did understand the gospel. Um, so I even confronted him about that and just, just to try to get more information and we're still on good terms after that. But as of right now, he's not submitting to Jesus in every area of his life. And that makes me at least question whether he truly knows Christ or not. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect in order to come to Jesus. I'm not saying that believers don't struggle with sin. I'm just saying that when we have sin that we're aware of and we don't want to do anything about it, that's a cause to question whether or not we're truly committed to following Christ. Partial obedience is counted as disobedience. And something else that we'll notice in our story today uh, is that We need relationships to point out our sin in order to see our blind spots. i say in our time, in our culture, the the way God has set up for us in the New Testament, those relationships come from the local church. Those in the local church can point out our sin to us and protect us from ourselves and from our blind spot. We need someone to confront us so that we can see areas that were not totally submitted to Jesus. So we can not just be partially obedient But totally obedient. And fortunately, Saul had someone like that to confront him. And we'll read about that shortly. So I can imagine a member of Israel, someone to whom the Old Testament was written, getting frustrated at this point in the story. Maybe as he's reading and he reads about Saul's failure to obey, he starts to question, like, you know, Saul was anointed by God and even he can't obey. How, How can I obey? How can I please God? What are we going to do? Who can rescue us from our sin and from ourselves? And even us today, we might start to wonder, how can we please God if Saul had this special ability, uh, this anointing from God, and he couldn't? Let me continue reading, and we'll see the third piece of our story today. And that's that uh, the people must follow a better leader than Saul. This is a longer section of verses, so I'll keep you updated on what one we're in. Uh, We're just going to start in verse 10. Let me read a couple for you. The word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. In a few minutes, we'll touch on the idea of God regretting something. That, that phrase sometimes makes people scratch their heads. You know, God's supposed to be all-knowing and omniscient. How can God regret? We'll get there. But for now, uh, just know that whatever this so-called regret of God's is, it's a result of Saul's disobedience, which Saul at first was blind to. Let's see just how blind Saul was to his disobedience. Verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, uh, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. And look what he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul is blind to his own inconsistencies. So he sets up a monument for himself, which is an indicator maybe of his priorities. He wanted glory and political prestige. And when Samuel does find Saul, Saul quickly exclaims, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Sometimes when someone is quick to explain themselves, it's obvious that something is wrong. If you ever walk into a room where a small child is playing with something that they know they're not supposed to, and you knew they're not supposed to touch it, and they, you walk in the room, and they notice you. They might stand up straight. and I was just playing. I wasn't, wasn't doing anything wrong. And, you know, maybe they could get away with it if they didn't react that way, but now it's like, okay, you must be up to something. That's kind of how I imagine uh, this scenario here, where Samuel shows up, and Saul deep down knows that he didn't obey. He's like, uh, blessed be you, Samuel. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Like, we, we all know that you didn't, Saul. Agag, the guy you were supposed to kill, is is standing right there behind you. We know that you didn't obey, but he's blind to his own inconsistency. And Samuel responds patiently. Like a good newtetic counselor, he asks a question in verse 14. And Samuel said in verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul provides an excuse in verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. But Samuel is not going to have any of this. It's so obvious that Saul did not completely obey God and anyone who wants to see it can. It's a good reminder for us today that the power of sin as in its deception those who are stuck in sin literally can't see it. It's certainly the case for unbelievers. The New Testament tells us that Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers, but even for believers, like we, we call their inconsistencies blind spots. But a good friend can lovingly show the other person their sin. And one of the main benefits of being closely knit to your church family in membership is that they can point out your sin to you. Like I said, Samuel is not going to have any of this. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel does a really good job of keeping the main thing the main thing in this confrontation. Saul, your problem is not that the people did this or that, it's not the circumstance that you found yourself in. Your problem is you. It's that you chose to disobey. Why didn't you obey? But then in verse 20, Saul doubles down. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He blames others for his sin. And interestingly, Samuel doesn't even acknowledge the blame shifting. Everyone knows Saul is in the wrong. So Samuel said in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. If you know the life of Saul, that comment about divination, or maybe some of your translations call it witchcraft, that comment is interesting because Saul did do some great things from the Lord, for the Lord, early in his kingship. And one of them was that he got rid of the practice of witchcraft in the kingdom of Israel. And here in this confrontation, uh, he, he probably felt happy about that, as he should have. The witchcraft has gone out of Israel, but here Samuel says your disobedience is as bad as the divination that you drove out of Israel. Let me insert here that if, if you are doing or want to do great things for God, but you have hidden sin, that service for God is not as valuable as you think it is. God doesn't need our work and our work ethic. He wants us to obey first and foremost. It doesn't matter what we think we can accomplish from a human perspective. What God wants most is our total obedience, our total submission. Finally, in our story, King Saul admits his sin. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. But Samuel doesn't respond very positively. He says in verse 26, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. God's people need a better leader. And I do think the negative example of Saul means something for us today. It highlights some dangers for us to avoid. But the main point, the main point of the story, our main point today, is that God's people need a better leader. All the leaders so far have been a blessing from God in some way, but they're deficient. They're affected by their sins and their lusts. We shouldn't insert ourselves into this story. We're the reader of the story, longing for the perfect leader that God has promised, the leader that would crush the head of the serpent and save us from our sins. In the very next chapter of 1 Samuel, King David would be introduced. And we have a largely positive picture of him as well, but he also is meant to point us to a coming Messiah, who we know ultimately, uh, although he was a man Although David was a man after God's own heart, he also was an imperfect leader, meant to point us to Christ. We know now also, as New Testament Christians, that the perfect leader has come, and he wasn't what Israel expected, but he accomplished far more than any of their previous kings. He accomplished freedom from sin, a solution to death, And those who follow the perfect leader, Jesus, will not suffer in the way that those who follow imperfect kings suffer. Jesus never gave in to the voice of the people. Jesus never gave in to fear like Saul. Jesus always did what was right, and he accomplished perfect obedience on our behalf, not only so that we could go to heaven one day, but so that we could walk with God now, be forgiven and help others do the same, so that we could be leaders ourselves. And we're not done talking about Jesus, but I also want to finish the story. Uh, there are two loose ends that I want to tie up before some final thoughts today. The first one is the idea of God's regret that I mentioned a few minutes ago. I said earlier that uh, some are uncomfortable with the idea of God regretting something because he's omniscient. He knows everything. You would think that knowing everything would prevent you from being able to experience regret. And also verse 29 says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. But then the passage ends in verse 35 and says, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So what is going on? Is God experiencing regret? regret or not, because the passage seems to be saying two different things here. The answer may or may not be satisfying to everyone, uh, but you have to understand that, that God is not someone that we can totally understand, not completely. He's revealed himself, but he's also infinite, and we're not. Sometimes human writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they will use words to describe God or other spiritual things, they'll use words to describe it, and they have some analogous correlation to the reality that they're trying to describe, but there's also not a perfect physical thing that it's correlated to. Uh, Let me give you an example. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 66 verse 1, it says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, Okay, so what, what is, if we want to take that literally, which generally we, we do want to take the Bible literally, what, what is he actually saying here? Is he actually saying that God is sitting on heaven as if it's a throne, and he's got his feet kicked up on the earth as if it's some royal Ottoman? That's not really what the author is trying to say. Uh, he's using language that poetically describes God's transcendence, his greatness, his power, and his strength. And the text does it by using words that we understand. But that doesn't mean that the underlying reality has a literal connection. And I think it's fair to say that when the Bible says God regrets, something similar is going on. It's not the exact same because it's not uh, a metaphor. It's not the, the, a perfect correlation. But something similar is going on. So when God's chosen anointed king chose to disobey and god uh, is going to pick another leader it gets described as regret because we know what regret is because we're human but hence what it says in verse 29 he's not a man that he should have regret it's not really regret it's just using that word so that we can understand what it's like and hopefully that answers questions and doesn't create more Uh, But that's my uh, best attempt to explain why it can sound like God is regretting something, but it also says he's not regretting it in the same passage. The second loose strand that we need to tie up is uh, simply to reinforce how important obedience is to God and God's true followers. If you read uh, the ending of the story, which we will in a minute, you'll see that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces, when God says to kill, you, you kill. Let me, let me read the last handful of verses just right now. That way you can see all the verses that mention regret in their context. Uh, but you also get to see the end of the story and the importance of finishing uh, the job that God gave to Saul. So verse 29 through the end of the chapter. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he, Saul, said... I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed down before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we need the perspective of people who don't stand to gain from our sinful actions. Saul was blind because of the lust of the people and his fear of man. We, too, are often blinded by our own lusts, our own desires, and we're in need of help. So the story is over. Loose strands hopefully are tied up, and I believe once again that this is meant to be more than just a, st- a negative story about partial obedience. It's, uh, it's meant to whet our ep- appetites for the chosen one of God, the perfect leader, without whom we would all be trapped eternally under God's wrath for our disobedience. Though so maybe you've never given yourself over to the leadership of Jesus. Maybe you've never asked for forgiveness of your sins, And never committed to following him forever. Uh, But you can do that today. You can talk to me or talk to one of your pastors. We can open a Bible with you and show you that Jesus has already accomplished everything needed uh, for your eternal salvation. But if you are following Jesus, you need to remember that when you lead, you need to lead others to follow Jesus. This needs to be true both in our formal positions of leadership, but also in the everyday of life. If you're a dad or a husband, your instruction on how to be a dad or a husband is found in God's word. Lead your wife and kids in a way that makes much of Jesus's authority in your life. Same thing for for moms, your instruction on how to be a parent is found in God's word. Train up your children to follow Jesus and bring them up in his instruction. Children and teens, maybe you feel that uh, this isn't relevant to you talking about leadership. It feels like you're just a follower of everybody and not a leader. It feels like you have to submit to everyone and not lead anyone. Well, one of the best tests for you and to find out if you're ready to be a leader is if you have learned to be a great follower. And you can show that you're serious about following Jesus by following your parents. Really the point is that in every area of life, we have to follow Jesus, the better leader. Let him decide what you're passionate about. Let him decide how you spend your time. Just like Saul had instruction directly from God, so do we in God's word, study it. Build your life around it. Fall in love with God's word. Follow it completely. And if you find anyone following you in any area of responsibility, let them know that you're following Jesus and you want to help them do the same. Give yourself to the unceasing, flesh-abandoning, eternally-fulfilling, self-sacrificing life of following Jesus, God's perfect leader who solved our problem of sin and death, and paved a road to the Father for all who trust in him. No one can lead like Jesus, follow him completely. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful just for the opportunity to uh, come together and uh, worship you in song, uh, have scripture read hear your word preached, and we we pray that your word would affect us deeply and that it would change us and sanctify us to become more like Christ. I pray that you'd help us all to see ourselves as leaders. Since we are Christians, since we have been saved from sin and death, we need to see ourselves as your disciples who need to be making more disciples and leading others. Help us to be good stewards of what you give us, And just thank you again for the opportunity we've had to come together today. We ask your blessing on the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.